Thank you, Howard. Uh, Wayne, the gentleman he's talking about that loses his vision, that sits down here almost every week without fail, would come up to me after class with something uh, either to, to add or a word of encouragement or something. And uh, uh, he is a, a wonderful man. And uh, 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 I have no doubt will appreciate your prayers, even if he doesn't realize that he's got them. Um, Becky handed me a note. Becky was just informed that Anita Renfro, who is coming to the luncheon, the comedian, that's a surprise. <clears throat> so, so if someone finds out, we're going to know you told them. <laughs> um, don't, don't, don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay. Um, we, yeah, who needs a lesson? Mark Craver's got his hands up. Uh, Bob and I were in, uh, uh, where were we, Bob? We were in New Orleans on Thursday. We've been, we've been traveling this week, so i got to orient. We were in New Orleans on Thursday. We heard a lady speak. Uh, the lady was speaking about speaking. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I, she talked about PowerPoint, and I've taken some of her ideas, and I'm trying to integrate them into my speaking. So um, I don't know if they're any good, but I've revamped the PowerPoint for this morning. So, um, uh, <laughs> oh, John, <laughs> I saw who it was. Um, I have revamped the PowerPoint for this morning, uh, so um, I, I would love your, your thoughts and your feedback, um, not during class, afterwards. Uh, we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. I've got Charles Mickey here this morning uh, uh, in from Dallas. Uh, he was on another trip with us that we got back in late last night, and he hasn't joined his family at home yet. But uh, uh, Charles uh, helped me yesterday on the airplane editing the lesson and came up with a couple of points that I'd just clear missed. I said, can I uh, put them in there without footnoting you and just take credit myself? He said, sure. I didn't realize he'd be sitting here, so now I have to give credit. Um, uh, so uh, uh, thank you to Charles, not just for this Sunday, but now let me go ahead and admit he's been doing this for some time. Um, <clears throat> let's look at, uh, we started looking at worship issues in 1 Corinthians last week. Let's keep going. The background information has stayed no different, but boy, look at that PowerPoint. Did you read that? That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> See the way it just... Shush. The goal is that you read it along with me. So I don't just have to say it. For example, I could say Paul starts the church, stays there 18 months, or I could just click. Watch this. Did you get the point? Uh-huh. How about this one? Paul knew the church's problems. Paul planned to visit the church very soon. So whatever he's writing about is important enough for it not to wait. By the same token, he's writing to people who know that they're going to be held accountable for what he says. It's one thing to say, uh, uh, you know, do ABC and uh, I'll never see you again. It's another thing to say, do ABC and I'll be there in a couple weeks. And that gives you just enough time to get it down right before I get there. So uh, Paul's got accountability there. The church was divided. Many people questioned Paul, questioned his teaching as well as his authority. And many people at this church thought themselves super spiritual or hyper spiritual or holier than thou. Not just a holier than thou typically denotes the attitude of um, I do better than you do, for me at least. These people thought, 
I am wiser. I, I am uh, more, I'm, I'm more like God than, than the others in the church. These were the holier than thou's in a super spiritual way. And so th- with these problems, Paul is addressing in the chapters we're looking at today, uh, worship issues. Now, he started those, like I said, back in about chapter 8 probably. Last week we looked at the Lord's Supper and what Paul taught about that. We looked at how men and women pray or prophesy with their heads covered, uh, uh, if they're women, with their heads uncovered, if they're men. And we looked at the pagan feasts that Paul said don't be attending anymore. With that, we finished chapter 11, and now we move into chapter 12. Chapter 12, what we're going to look at is what does it mean to be spiritual? You've got a church where some people think that they're, the, they're hyper-spiritual, they're, they're super-spiritual, and, and, and that church, those people don't understand what being spiritual really is. Being spiritual is not Louis Miori having a job on staff. That doesn't make Louis more spiritual than anybody else. Uh, now, Lewis is very wise, and Lewis has a, a, the Lord's Spirit reeks out of most of his pores if he's not playing racquetball, but <laughs> he is not a Christian on the racquetball court. But that was before he got his little girly arm surgery done, so we'll see how he does later. Um, but uh, uh, Lewis, you know, you can look at Lewis and you can say he's spiritual, but he's not spiritual because he works on staff. Okay, we go to Steve Taylor. Steve Taylor uh, doesn't work on staff. Steve Taylor, his spirituality does not elevate him over other people. He's a great prayer warrior. You got prayer requests, you put Steve on it. I don't know about Michelle, but Steve prays like nobody I've seen since my mom who's down here and her mom who's next to her. So these are the people you need prayer that you go to these and Howard and you're there. Um, uh, but that doesn't make him super spiritual. What makes someone spiritual is a question that Paul has. And uh, um, Paul specifically looks at it in terms of spiritual gifts. What gifts make someone spiritual? Are some spiritual gifts better than others? Do some, does God save the really good ones for the really good people? You know, if you've got the really good spiritual gifts, does that mean that God especially smiles on you? Whereas the person whose spiritual gift might be cleaning up the sanctuary after everybody's gone, oh, God must not look too fondly on that person. Look what their spiritual gift is, cleaning. Okay, So, you know, Paul addresses these kinds of questions. And Paul does it with first talking generally in chapter 12. Just general concepts behind spiritual gifts and how they work and why they work. And after Paul talks about it generally... Paul, in chapter 13, takes uh, uh, an interlude. He puts in some theology. He puts in some doctrine teaching concepts that are important for us to understand chapter 14, which are specific instructions about how these spiritual gifts should work. Now, who's ever been to a church where they speak in tongues? And by tongues, I mean something other than the predominant language of the people. Okay, a good bit of you. Um, um, uh, tongues are something that's addressed quite seriously through this because it's an issue that the Corinthian church had. So this is a morning that we get to look at it. And, and what I want us to do as we look through some of these things is it, the hardest thing to do in some ways with Scripture. But in some ways it's one of, if not the most important, it's one of the most important things to do. And that is try as hard as you can to take all of your problems and issues and questions that you have and set them aside for a minute 
and don't go to Scripture just first looking for answers to the questions you have. Go to Scripture first trying to understand why it was written and what it meant to say to the people who got it. Then we take that next step and try to figure out how it will answer our questions. So as we look at this, we've got to try and understand what was going on in the Corinthian church as best as we can and try to make sense out of what Paul is saying to them. The Corinthian church was not dealing with a charismatic revival or a charismatic movement that many of us have, have watched or been a part of or seen or, or uh, 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 read about here in America or here in the world. The church at Corinth was a still a very young church. It was a church in the apostolic age, right there at the beginning of it. And so uh, uh, it's, it's, their problems were different than the questions that we take. Bring your questions. Your questions are valid. But before, don't read this scripture or listen to this class with the question as the defining point. Let's understand what the passage says, then let's answer the questions. Fair? Okay. So, this week, let's do that. What does it mean to be spiritual? Paul's first uh, overriding concern as he writes this. In spiritual gifts, for Paul, it's not a question of what gifts you have. If you want to know who's spiritual and who's not, you don't look at the gift or gifts that you have. Who out there has any uh, idea what spiritual gifts you might have? Who's ever even thought of that? Okay, maybe 50 or 60%, maybe 70%. God's Spirit gives gifts to His children. And when we try and assess where our role is in the church or where our role is in terms of each other and where our place is in this world, we should not sit there and try and assess, oh, I have these gifts, I'd rather have those. These gifts make me somewhat important. But boy, I'd rather have that one. That's a lot better gift. That's a lot more important. I promise you the grass is always greener on the other side. Some people might like the gift of, of teaching. That, that If you've got it, great, go for it. If you don't have it, uh, there's still opportunities to teach. But maybe there are people who, who uh, uh, don't have it who say, boy, wouldn't that be cool to get to stand up and teach that chapel class every Sunday? Um, and, and it is cool if, to, to me. I love it. I, it's, it's a great joy. But by the same token, there's a whole lot involved in it. I, I stand up here and there's part of me that says, wouldn't it be cool to have the gift of healing? I think it'd be fun to go see Wayne in the hospital and be able to say, uh, you know, here's your eyesight back in the name of Jesus. You know, uh, I, I don't have that gift. I think some people may have it in a miraculous way. I think a lot of people have. I think anything that God has done is miraculous. I don't have the overhead here. You see, we think, here's, here's the difference between the way we think and the way Paul thought. We tend to look at things as miracles versus non-miracles. See, I think in Paul's mind, you take Dr. John Adams sitting over there who clapped at the PowerPoint <laughs> derisively. Um, Dr. John Adams, I think, has a gift of healing. Mark Barhorse there, uh, Dr. Mark Barhorse, Center for Pain, Recovery, whatever. He's got a gift of healing. It doesn't mean he can heal everybody, but what Mark is gifted or John is gifted and talented at at helping people's physical ailments 
is not something that, that's apart from God. It's something that God's put into their lives. And, and our concept of, of, of what's natural versus what's miraculous is a bit out of joint with the Bible's. The Bible's concept is anytime God, who is beyond nature, anytime God intervenes in nature, then that is the supernatural. That is something beyond nature entering into nature. And, and by definition, a miracle. That's God at work. God at work is a miracle, period. When God works, it's a miracle. Sometimes God works by molding circumstances together. And when God molds circumstances together, it's a miracle. Even though we could look at it being caught up and say, oh, well, that's not a miracle. That's just coincidence. Or that's just circumstance working together. Sometimes God intervenes just bam, like uh, the conception of Jesus by a virgin. You know, that's just, that's not molding circumstances together. That's just a direct intervention. It's a miracle. But, it, you know, biblically, I'm getting off subject. The point is, for Paul, if you want something to understand what it is to be spiritual, look at the gifts that you have. It, it's not a question of, of which ones you've got, but it, when you look at them, it's going to be a question of how you use them and why. The spiritual person is the person who takes the gifts that God has given them and uses them for God's purposes. Uses them with love, motivated by love for God's purposes. And that's really what Paul's going to be driving at here. The person who takes the spiritual gifts God's given them and uses them for themselves, that's not spiritual. And this is the driving point for Mark Barhorst to take the gift of, of, of healing and, and to use it only on himself. That's not a spiritual way to exercise the calling God's put on his life. For Louis Miori to take his gift of counseling and to use it only for himself, that's not him using the gift that God's given him in his calling. And your calling can be a gift too. I do not believe that the list that Paul gives of gifts of the Spirit are exhaustive. I think they're examples. Okay, so let's look at them. Here's the general word in chapter 12. Before and after. Paul starts out the chapter saying, I want you to consider what you were like before you became Christians and afterwards. Now this may not apply to you and me. But this applied to the Corinthians, and so let's look at it from their perspective. The Corinthians, beforehand, they were led away to mute idols. Now, they might go worship Aphrodite, okay? but Aphrodite's not talking to them. She's mute. She has no voice. She isn't real. So prior to their Christian life, the pagans were led astray to idols that were mute. That's who they followed. They followed idols that were useless, that had no voice to speak to them. But once they became Christians, afterwards, they now worship a God who speaks. God speaks through Christ. Christ, in a very real sense, was the Word of God. It was God speaking to mankind, speaking revelations, speaking about God's character, speaking about God's love speaking about God's work, speaking about uh, uh, the nature of God's relationship with man, speaking about how uh, uh, the, the whole thing we see in Jesus, the word of, of God. So God speaks, our God speaks, not like Aphrodite. Aphrodite never sent anybody. 
God sent Jesus Christ. So we have God speaking through Christ, but how else do we have God speaking in the church? Through the Spirit. And the Spirit is within us. And Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16, five different times said that God's going to send the Spirit. He's one who's a helper. He's called alongside you to convict you of your sin and of righteousness and of judgment and of the fact that you're in the Father, or you're in me, and I'm in the Father, and I'm in you. He's going to bear witness to me. He's going to bring glory to me. All of these things the Holy Spirit does. And so we don't have a, a, a mute idol. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God in Jesus Christ. We have a God who desires to communicate to you and to me. Now take a moment and think. Just, just take a moment and think about this. We worship the God who created everything in the universe. And He desires to communicate to each one of us. To you and you and you. That's pretty incredible. It's not always something I want. Sometimes I just assume Him not know I'm here. But 24-7... 365 days a week except leap year, and then it's 366. He desires to speak to you. And, and, and that's what Paul wants people thinking of. Because as soon as we start realizing this, we start making that subtle shift between our focus being on who we are and how important we are. And we begin to get a perspective because there's Almighty God who's speaking to us. And when you're in the presence of God, you don't tend to notice how great you are. So, what are the words that the Spirit gives us? What do you think of that? See, he's writing on a scroll. I'm hyping this up for y'all. Yeah, how about that old Dr. John Adams? So, um, the words of the Spirit. What does the Spirit say? Well, Paul says, No one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I had a friend in high school. His name was Eddie Bell. Eddie has since become a Christian. Mom remembers Eddie. Uh, Eddie told me one time that the Bible's fake. And I said, no, it's not. And he said, yes, it is. I said, no, it's not. He said, I can prove it. I said, no, you can't. He said, yes, I can. I said, okay, do it. He said, well, I've been reading it. And I said, I have too. He said, open it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. I opened it up. He says, I'm a pagan. I don't believe there's God. I said, I know. He said, so I don't have the Spirit of God. I said, I'm not arguing. He said, uh, he said Jesus is Lord. So it's false. I just said Jesus is Lord, and I didn't say it by the Holy Spirit. I said, you're wrong. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, but I will one day. <laughs> I will tell you today, Eddie Bell's a Christian. I'm delighted to tell you. Um, Paul is not here giving a little test, a test that will disprove Scripture. Paul is not someone who's setting up these little dolls in the arcade where you can take a baseball and throw it and knock them down because he's so foolish as to say something that's not right. That's taking this totally out of the context. Paul here in context is saying that the Spirit of God is a Spirit that's going to bring glory to Jesus Christ. 
So, for example, if you went to the Jewish synagogue, which was real upset with Paul and the Christians, you'll recall they booted him out after a few weeks. If you go to the Christian synagogue and some of the people stand up, even though they worship the same God, if some of those people stand up and say, Jesus be cursed or anathema, it's a Hebrew word that's been Greek-sized there by Paul. If they stand up and say, Jesus be cursed, even though it's the same God, don't think they're speaking by the Spirit of God because they're not. No one says that. By the same token, someone who says Jesus is Lord, not physically utters the words, but someone whose life and convictions and, and, and who they are declares that Jesus is their Lord. They're doing that by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says the Holy Spirit speaks. This isn't mute idols. The Holy Spirit speaks not only to us individually, but through us to others in the church. So you want to hear the Holy Spirit, you not only listen for the Holy Spirit in your heart, but listen for the Holy Spirit through your Christian brothers and sisters in church. The Corinthians were missing this, and I'll show you why as we keep going. How does the Spirit speak? Well, He speaks through gifts, Paul says, to others within the church. So Paul lists some of the gifts. He talks about words of wisdom. He talks about words of knowledge. He talks about gifts of faith. talks about healing. Uh, prophecy, distinguishing spirits, tongues. He saved that for last. He'll talk about tongues again a couple more times, and each time he'll list tongues first. But first time he gives it, and, and he gives it last at the end of the list. Now, if the Spirit's going to speak this way to the brothers and sisters here in our church, Paul says, please understand generally that all of these different gifts come from one Spirit. Okay? And all of these different gifts are for the good of the church. So the whole reason that there are words of wisdom for church, the whole reason God's Spirit works in people with words of knowledge, the whole reason God's Spirit works within the church assembly and gifts of faith, or in the church assembly with gifts of healing, or in the church assembly with tongues, or in the church assembly with prophecy or distinguishing spirits, is for the good of the church. That's what God is about in the assembly. Paul says, this is like a body. See, all the Corinthians wanted the same gift, or a bunch of them did anyway, because they thought that'd make them look real good. Oh, I'd love the gift of tongues. There are church movements that have said, if you become a Christian and, and have the Holy Spirit and possess the Holy Spirit and are baptized in the Holy Spirit, the way you will know is you will speak in tongues. And it grew out of the Pentecostal movement of the late 1800s here in America. And, and there is a specific movement that says that is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that one gift, you, don't have the, you have not been baptized at least in the Holy Spirit. And that's not Paul's teaching here. Paul's teaching here is that different people have different gifts. And so Paul says the body is a whole, but the body that's a whole is made up of different parts. <laughs> you need more than your nose and feet or you look mighty goofy. No part is more important than another part. We can't say that uh, uh, one, you know, our, my, my, I'm, you know my, my feet are more important than my, my hands. 
Well, no, they're equally important in my life. I need them both, thank you very much. But Paul says, when you understand that just as your body has different parts, realize that the church you are is the body of Christ. And so isn't it to be expected the body of Christ would have different parts? And not everybody's going to be a counselor? I mean, just think if we were all counselors. Do you know what dinner would be like? <laughs> tell me about your problem. No, you tell me about your problem. No, you tell me about yours. I asked first. I asked second. You know? If we were all um, speakers, oh, heavens, we'd never go home. Or we'd never come to church. Um, you know, if, if, if God's body, different people have different functions. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are noses, some are hands, some are feet. But we are his body. And you put us all together. And the wonder is, is God has put his body together. And that's the wonder. Fits very well with what Damon was saying as the potter and the clay out of the Jeremiah passage this morning or the Romans 9 passage. Either way, God's built an entire body. And he's given the gifts. And so that's what you've got. Now, Paul does not say, time out. Let's now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We pause for a commercial break because we're going to talk about something totally unrelated to what we've been saying so that people can use it in weddings for thousands of years. That's not what Paul's doing. What Paul is doing in 13 is giving us some necessary theology before he gives the specific instructions about how to do the gifts. Now, some of the wonders of God's Word is Paul speaks so incredibly profoundly about a subject that is the core of God's essence, love, that it's very nice and, and appropriate even to take it and remove it as a module and use it in other parts of our lives and our teachings. Okay? But we need to put the module back in for this class today and understand it in the flow of what Paul's saying. You with me? All right. So chapter 13 is not just, oh, it's lucky 13. This must be a good chapter. You know, oh, I'm going to save that for 13. No. Chapter 13 is in the middle of 12 and 14, and it follows in a good flow of thought because what Paul says is, I've given you this general word that all of you have a different gift or, or different gifts, and you're all part of a body, but you want to use those gifts, and you want to know which gifts are really good? I'm going to show you the most excellent way you can use any gift you've got. You want to know how to use your gifts for God, I'm going to show you the most excellent way you can ever do it. And it's about love. You use your gifts in love. So, with this as context, the most excellent way is going to make any gift you have greater. You want to be super spiritual? You want to have great gifts? Use them in love. Love the Greek word that Paul uses here is agape. Agape is, a, uh, there are multiple Greek words for love. Agape is a Greek word for love that talks of, that, that's a love motivated by a care for others, a concern for others, the welfare of others. It's a love, uh, my agape love for, for Becky is, should be one that's motivated for what's best for Becky. How do I best take care of Becky? My agape love for Ray Tucker should be, what can I do that's best for Ray? How can I best minister for Ray's good? Not for what I get out of it. This is not the kind of love that says, I'm going to love Becky because 
you know, she'll make my favorite meal when I want it. Or I'm going to love Becky because she makes it easy for me to go out of town and do the work that I have to do because she takes care of the house so well. Or it, it, it's not a love that's motivated by what she does for me. It's a love that's motivated out of my care and concern for her. That's God's love for us. God didn't love us because of what we do for him. He, he wasn't desperate for attention. And he wasn't needing sycophants to walk around saying, oh, you're wonderful. He doesn't need that. He had angels. God loves us. Jesus did not die on the cross for us because he needed us to give him something. It wasn't motivated by anything he got out of it. Jesus died on the cross because it's his nature to give and to take care of us. And that's what he does there. There's another Greek word for love, eros. Paul did not use the word eros. We get erotic from it, which gives you a, a clue as to its meaning. It's a love that's motivated by the effect on me. That's the love that says, I'm going to bring Becky flowers because she's really ticked off at me and this is going to make it a whole lot easier to come home. As opposed to, I'm going to bring Becky flowers because it lets her know she's special in my eyes. You see the difference? I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to love Lewis because, you know, he's, he's always there for me as a friend and he's, you know, looking out for me and it's a good win relationship. Win being for me. That's not the word Paul uses. Neither does Paul use the word philos, which is a, a friendship love. You can remember that because Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Philos is a, a, a love as a friend or love as a brother. That's not what Paul uses. So Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 13 about agape love, a selfless love. And what I'd like to do is expound in great eloquence about this chapter and tell you wonderful things about it. The problem is, it's like when I tried to type it. And Charles and I, same frustration. I thought, how do I put 1 Corinthians 13 into this outline in a way that, that captures the thought, but is you know, kind of condensed? The Reader's Digest condensed version. I couldn't do it. I couldn't leave a word out. And I want us to just take time to read 1 Corinthians 13 together as Paul wrote it, because it's incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful. So here's what he said. Paul said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak in the tongues of men, I can stand up here and speak Hebrew, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, Syriac. Those are the languages I studied. If I stand up here and speak in those... Or if I was to speak in the tongues of angels, that, you know, whatever they may be. But I do it without love. I might as well be up here smashing a cymbal for y'all. For all the useful noise I'm making. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I don't have love. And you see what Paul's doing here? You see how this is connected to the last chapter? These are gifts that he just talked about. Gifts of faith, gifts of, of knowledge, 
gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongue. If I were to have gifts of prophecy, I could fathom all mysteries. I could fathom all knowledge. I have a faith that can move mountains, literally. But I don't have love. I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor, and I surrender my body to the flames, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Agape love that cares about someone else and not yourself. Motivated by caring about someone else as opposed to motivating about yourself. Let me say it that way because you, you are to love yourself. You love your neighbor as yourself. You're to care for what's best for yourself just as much as you do your neighbor. But if we focus on a kind of love that's talking about the church at large and how you tend to your brothers and sisters within your core family as well as your church family, love is patient. Love is kind. Um, I want to be that. I was driving down the road to take Rachel to school the other day. And uh, there's a man that I'm hoping is not in this class. Actually, maybe he should be. We, we need to have a talk. On Cutton Road, the school zone used to be from 7 to 9. They've changed it. It's now from 8 to 8.20 in the morning. It was 7.05. I was well outside the school zone time. So I was trying to go as close to the 40 miles an hour that the law will allow. But a lot of people don't realize that the school zone's been changed because it was just changed two or three weeks ago. Is that about, about two or three weeks ago? So there's this fella who's uh, driving about 20. And there's this lady that's driving about 25. And I got behind the lady that was going about 25, figuring that pretty soon she'd gain enough that I could cut over into the lane of the guy that's going 20, and I could resume my 40. Thinking, well, bless their hearts. You know, they just don't realize because they didn't read the big sign that says school zone 8 to 820. So I pull up behind the woman that's going 25, and then the man who was going 20 realized I was about to get in front of him. He sped up to 25, and he starts laying on his horn. I looked at him. He rolls down his window. I rolled down my window. I thought we were going to talk. We... I, think, I think he's a sailor. Because he's got real blue language. He called me some things that You'd never let me say growing up, Mom. Mom taught us when we were growing up, she said, don't cuss. She said, anybody can cuss. She said, it takes a really creative, smart person to think of even better words to use. So we took that as a challenge growing up, not to talk that way. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so he just, I mean, I'm a blanking blank blank. And, uh, blank and, and, and I'm looking at it, he says, it's a school zone. So at that point, the lawyer and me kicked in. And I said, yeah, from 8 to 8.20, but it's 7.05 right now. He kind of looked at it. He said, well, you're still a blankety-blank, and he rolled his window off. <laughs> um, I'm not sure I was kind to him, and I want to be kind to him. I'm pretty sure he wasn't kind to me. We weren't showing Christian love going down Cutting Road like we should. Love does not envy. If you're looking out for someone's best and you're motivated by what's best for them, you don't sit there and desire it for yourself instead. Love does not boast. Why on earth, if I care about what's best for you, would I spend my time trying to make me important in your eyes? 
by boasting, or in my own eyes by boasting. Love's not proud. Love's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Some of us like our little scorecards. We like to keep track of who's wronged us and who hadn't. And love doesn't keep track of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. Even when it happens to your enemies. <laughs> he had it coming. Ooh, yeah, glad to see that guy fall. No, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in truth. We're to love our enemies, remember. Okay. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. And Paul explains what he means here. Paul says that, that, that you know, these are things that are here now, but there's going to come a time where they're gone. We know in part, see, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I talked like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. That's a wonderful illustration. We don't want to be children anymore. We're constantly telling our teenagers. We're reminding them how old we are. Becky and I remind each other how old we are sometimes. We, about three or four months ago, we were just incessantly late to church. Anybody who sits down here in the front left would testify to that because we sneak in the side door so we can come out and get the stuff set up for class incessantly late. And finally, we just looked at each other and said, um, you know, we are 43 and 44 years old. We ought to be able to get to church on time. You know, you, you don't want to be children anymore. We're adults. And Paul says, you know, I used to think like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up those childish ways. In the same way, right now, we see a poor reflection in the mirror. But we're going to see when perfection comes face to face. Right now, we just know part. But we're going to know fully. That doesn't mean we're going to know all ins and outs of all mysteries. It means we'll have fuller understanding. We're going to know fully even as we're fully known. And now then, these three remain. We've got faith, we've got hope and love. But when Jesus comes back, what will we have? For eternity, we'll have love. Right? Our faith is, is made real by, by the, the coming of Jesus. Our hope for his second coming finds its fulfillment when he comes. But what still remains is love. So with that, Paul says, now let's get specific about worship. Understand love the way he just said it. And understand that your motivation with your gifts is not to make you feel better. Your motivation with your gifts is not to make you seem special. It's not self-seeking. It's not for boasting. It's not for pride. The motivation behind your gifts is a motivation of agape love that cares about other people. And if you consider, for example, tongues, Paul says, if tongues are to be used in worship, 
and they're to be used in love. That's the most excellent way to use any of these gifts. If it's a gift for the body and a gift for the whole body, not just the mouth, but the eyes and the ears and the nose and the hands and the feet, and that's your gift, okay? You've got that spiritual gift of tongues. Question, how's it going to work best in worship? What would you rather have? What would the body's best interest be? between these two choices. What's better for the people around us? Is it better that I speak five words you can understand or is it better that I speak 10,000 words that make absolutely no sense whatsoever to you? What's going to be better for you? How many people have ever gone to a Sunday school class where the whole thing was taught in an unknown tongue without anybody there to interpret? That would be a pretty big waste of about 45 minutes. Can you imagine going to a class where, oh, that was an incredible class today. Yeah, it was. What did you say? Don't have a clue. <laughs> because what we're about here is to try and enrich each other and also to speak the truth about Jesus Christ that will convict not only believers, but convict unbelievers that God is present in our midst. The Holy Spirit is here. And, and Paul says, if you want people to think the Holy Spirit's here, you might be able to do the tongues if you've got an interpreter. And if someone had a gift of speaking in Hebrew, and we had someone in here who could interpret it, that might be realistic. But an interpreter is someone who actually knows the language. It's not someone who just has this motivated feeling inside that this must be what's being uttered. Interpreter within the Greek is someone that, that grasps the language and is able to say it. So if you've got some... And, and there are instances in the Bible where people spoke in known tongues. Go back to Acts chapter 2. And if you've got someone who's got an ability to speak in some known tongue and you've got an interpreter, that's a different ballgame. But the unknown ecstatic utterances that Paul's referencing, you're not going to find people that know those generally. And so within the worship service, those aren't going to really find a place, Paul says. And he says, think about the effect it's going to have on visitors who come in. Who really desires, first of all, who has ever asked, someone to come to church with them. We've asked. And you just hope and pray it's a good sermon, don't you? <laughs> you just hope and pray that the Sunday school class is decent with new PowerPoint. <laughs> you, just, you just hope and pray that someone doesn't say something offensive because you've put a little of yourself out there when you've asked someone to come. And what happens at church is a reflection a little bit of you. And Paul says, when unbelievers come into church, don't get me wrong, and he quotes Isaiah. No, he quotes Jeremiah. No, he quotes Isaiah, excuse me. He quotes Isaiah. Don't get me wrong, tongues will have an effect on an unbeliever. They are a sign for an unbeliever. But they're not a good sign, they're a bad one. Because the unbeliever's going to go away and he's going to say, they're out of their mind. They're in their babbling. That out of their minds in quotation marks because Paul said it, not me. I don't mean to offend anybody. I've, I've worshipped at churches where people speak in tongues. 
And so I've got dear friends who are churches that people speak in tongues. And if I'm offending anyone in here, I'm sorry. I'm telling you what I believe the text is saying. I love you and you love me, so let's keep going. But Paul's saying, you know, the, the effect on visitors is they're going to think you're, you're a fruit loop if you just stand around and stand up and start babbling incoherently. Now, it's possible in California they might think you're on some kind of a substance that they would find useful. But generally, that's what's going to happen. So Paul says, that's not the way your services are to be conducted. Let me digress for a minute. I left something out. I want to emphasize the point that I made earlier, briefly in a sentence, and that is this. If instead of speaking in tongues, someone is able to stand up and, and divide the word of God, and speak by the Spirit of God truth about what life is like and about the wonderful God we serve and what He has done for us out of love and how it's radically cha changed my life because it has. It's made me different than I would ever be otherwise. How it's changed the way I relate to my wonderful wife and the way Becky relates to me. How it's changed the way we rear our children. How it's given us some answers to some of life's questions. How it's given me a peace even in the midst of turmoil around me. How it's given me a confidence to keep going tomorrow, even though I know what's coming tomorrow stinks, and I'd just as soon stay in bed all day. It gives me a confidence that God is able to work in the midst of circumstances that are as blindingly horrible for me as a rainstorm is to, a, a, to someone driving. The windshield wipers aren't even covering it. And yet God says, you can't see, but I see for you. And, and this is the God that I worship. And this is the God that I know. And this is the God who speaks to me through you and through his spirit in me and through Jesus Christ. And if someone can stand up and explain that, then those are the visitors that much like our songs were today from Dick Hill, those are the visitors that will walk away and say, God is among them. God is among them. And Paul says, that's what your assemblies need to be about. So when you get together, and when you worship together, remember the Corinthians were not blessed with a pulpit minister. So they would just come together. They, they didn't, I don't know if they had a pastor search committee going. I don't reckon they did. They may have needed one, though. Because what would happen is when they'd get together, they'd just, oh, everybody just start, oh, let me tell you what God says to me. Well, let me tell you what he says to me. Hold on there, cowboy. He said this to me first. Well, no, he said this. And they just start da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And Paul says, no, none of this. If you're going to come together, when you come together, two or three of you can speak. That's it. And only one at a time. Okay? Now, this is, by the way, remember, we're looking at a specific church with specific problems. Don't take that scripture to mean, oh, today was sacrilegious. We only had demand speak. Good thing we went to Sunday school. We got the two in. You know, we could go to class one more time, that'd be three, but we better not have a fourth guy because then all of a sudden we've left the holy word of God. You know, Paul's not, Paul's not giving dictation about exactly how every church needs to perform. He's saying within that Corinthian church, here's the answer to their disorderly problem because the goal is they need to get themselves in line for what they need to be doing. Two or three and one at a time. Then he says, women... Just keep silent. That's the way it is in all the church. If you've got a question, you go home and ask your husband. Now, some people take that to mean women aren't allowed to talk in church. Bob found out I was teaching on this. He said, I'm bringing Kelly. 
Oh, I wasn't supposed to say that, Bob. I am so sorry. Um, this does, I mean, you got to remember, three chapters earlier, four chapters earlier, Paul's telling women when they're praying and prophesying to do it with their heads covered. And that's in an assembly context. So this is not that, okay, now we've got to go to a church where none of the women are allowed to say anything. And you can go to these other Sunday school classes and, and oh, heaven forbid, a woman ask a question in a Sunday school class. She's going to hell. Maybe the whole class is tainted. Um, you know, it, that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's got a specific church. We don't understand all of the problems with the women, but clearly there were a disrupting problem with some women at the church. And Paul says, this is to be orderly not disorderly. And women, if you've got questions, which is what he's talking about here, so evidently there were some women who, and, and I've met men too who need to be quiet in the church sometimes because their questions are just as much out of line and disruptive. The point that Paul, I think, is making here is that church needs to be orderly in its worship. And we need to understand that. And, and that's the way it is in all churches, Paul says. They all need to be. So bottom line, in worship, we use the Spirit's gifts to glorify Christ as we encourage and help the body and as we witness to the unsaved. And that's what church is about. We glorify God, but we reach out to each other when we use the Spirit's gifts for our common good, not to bolster us. Does that make sense? So our points for home. Find your gifts. Figure out how you service someone, people in this assembly. Use your gifts for God. I'm thankful to the people who hand out micro, uh, lessons. I'm thankful to Howard who stands up here with a gift of prayer and praise week after week with a true burdened heart for the people he prays for. I'm thankful for David. Uh, I'm thankful for the Hudgens. I'm thankful for so many people who work in so many behind-the-scenes way. Heavens, thanks to Christy for putting together parties. Thanks to all of you who pray for me. Thanks for you for coming. You know, every, I, I tell you, you use the gift of God when you come to church and you pay attention. Build up those in the church and put love in everything you do. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for the gifts you've given us. It is my prayer that we will use your gifts for our common good. That we will see this church built up as a body. That our class will be built up. That other classes and, and other people in the church and people in the neighborhoods will say, these are a people who love each other because they see the way we care and look out for the common good. Please, Lord, make us those kinds of children for you. We pray through our Savior Jesus. Amen.